This morning's sermon, as you see on the screen, is titled, The Truth of Mercy. It's taken from the, the very end of the parable, the Good Samaritan, Luke 10, verse 36 or 37, which one was the, the good neighbor, is the one who showed mercy. I was getting ready to preach this week, I was preparing, and I was reminded of one of my favorite TV shows, The West Wing. My wife and I have a hard time finding stuff we like to watch on TV for a variety of reasons, but we do like The West Wing, all seven seasons of it, and once you get started, it takes a while to get through. And in the middle of season one, you're introduced to one of the main characters, whose uh, name is Leo McGarry. He's the chief of staff for President Josiah Bartlett, who was Martin Sheen, if you're familiar with the show. And anyways, Leo, the chief of staff, is this really admirable guy. He's a, he's a high achiever. He's really loyal. He works hard. You want to be like Leo McGarry. One of the reasons I love the West Wing is there's a rich character development throughout the, the seven different uh, seasons of it. It's kind of fun to watch how they tease that out. In the middle of season one, we find out that Leo had a dark side. He wasn't just this model citizen that you wanted to be like. He's had a, a long-term alcohol addiction, we find out. He's been in AA for decades. And you think that's kind of the, the dark side that's been revealed. And then just a little bit after, you find out that Leo also had a major addiction to prescription meds and that he had this season in his life when he was in a rehab center and it had been concealed and the press didn't know about it. And one of the White House staffers in the first year of their, uh, their term leaked it to the press and it totally undercut that whole presidency. And so as they find out who leaked Leo's personal business illegally, the rest of the cabinet is furious. They want this, this staffer fired and give them 10 minutes to clean up their office and get out of here. You've got no place with us. And Leo says, I'd like to meet with this young lady. Comes into her office, his office, rather. He opens up, tells about his personal struggles, battles he's faced, difficulties along the way. And he, he says to this, this young lady, he says, look, I know I've made terrible mistakes, but I know I need second chances too. And yeah, you, you shouldn't have done this. It's gonna hurt me, it's gonna hurt this whole presidency. But in the same way that I want second chances, I want you to have a second chance as well, you don't have to clean out your office. You can stay and continue to work even though you've done me great wrong and it will harm us significantly. And as she kind of gasps in awe and blushes at the, the thought of the kindness he's just showed to her, she walks out of his office and the episode ends and the credits roll. And it's like in the middle of season one, the character development heightens. Is Leo is not only this guy that you want to be like, that's a, a high achiever and loyal to his friends. Leo is merciful as well. Wow. How could we be like Leo? It's the clear message that is being portrayed that there's mercy to be had and it is really good to see mercy on display. We love a good story of mercy. I remember a couple of, uh, a couple of years ago, I had borrowed a friend's truck. I was digging out a paver patio in my backyard and I needed a way to get the dirt that I dug out, out of there. So I, I borrowed his truck, loaded it up, and the last day we were working, it ended up being sort of a torrential downpour, which was helpful in one sense that the clay that I was trying to dig out came up a lot easier. It was not helpful in the sense of making the back of his truck a complete disaster. 
And for a whole variety of reasons that are mostly my own excuses, I didn't clean out his truck very well at all. Uh, and I brought it back to him, and it was so filthy. There was mud caked all over it, so much so that the, the tailgate could barely even close, if it could close at all. And somehow I found a good reason to justify this to myself. But I brought it back to him, and, and of course it's, it's embarrassing, right? This guy is super kind, lets you borrow his truck, so on and so forth, and you bring it back and the thing's a mess. And he didn't get angry at me. The next time we had a conversation, he you know, I'm kind of sheepishly, like, kind of beating around the bush. Like, I bought him a, a Mike's car wash set of cards. I'm like, you know, better late than never. Here you go. I'm sorry. And, and he said, look, I'm, I, I realize this. I've been shown mercy in far more significant ways than a dirty truck. The least I can do is show mercy to you and not be upset about this. And it was really hard to receive that because I'm like, man, I'm still in the wrong. Like, I, I want to receive your mercy, but I still feel really bad about this. But the core of it, it was really beautiful too, right? Like, it, it was costly to him to take the time to go and clean this thing out. Like, there was no Mike's car wash that was going to clean out the back of his truck, right? This was like a go in there and do it yourself. It takes a couple of hours kind of job. But the point of both of those stories, whether it be from a TV show or from my personal life, is that displays of generous mercy, they resonate deeply in our souls, don't they? The beauty is undeniable. It's compelling, I love a story like that. And we want to be shown mercy in the times that we're wrong. We want to be shown mercy, not even when we're not wrong, but just when we fall on hard times and we want to be shown kindness and compassion. Instead of people saying like, why would you get yourself into that mess? Or why wouldn't you be a little wiser? That's all of us. So why is it then that we can see the goodness, we can desire it be shown to us, and it is so stinking hard to show mercy? Why is that? Well, that's what this parable tells us about. These are truths hidden in plain sight. This morning's truth hidden in plain sight is this. Loving mercy is essential, but humanly impossible. Loving mercy is essential, but humanly impossible. On the one hand, that's exciting to say, like, yes, this is a good thing. We ought to love mercy. It's essential. On the other hand, it seems a little bit dark to say that it's humanly impossible. Maybe you even wonder about that. You might hear me say that and think, Justin, is it actually humanly impossible or just kind of difficult? And what I'll suggest is that you can show mercy from your human strength, but you cannot love mercy from your human strength. That's why I say loving mercy is humanly impossible. When I use that term mercy, what I mean by it is simply this, showing goodness to those in misery or distress. Showing goodness to those in misery or distress. Maybe that's a misery, a distress they've brought on themselves. Maybe it's one they didn't bring on themselves. We, I'm not making a judgment either way on that, but showing goodness to those in misery or distress. And so when we think about this parable of the Good Samaritan, let's dig in on the context just a little bit, and then we'll get into our outline uh, after we dig on the context. Look, look back at verse 25 as the context is being set up for us here. We read in verse 25, Behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Uh, we're immediately sort of told, right, in, in the words there, that this is not a good faith question, right? Because he's putting the teacher to the test, verse 25. Later on, verse 29, it would say that he is self-justifying. He's trying to justify himself, to prove that he's good enough. 
The, the question he asked implies a calculation of good works. Like he's got an Excel sheet going, marking down everything he's done and saying, does it add up to enough? Right? A more literal, more wooden translation of his question would say something like this. Based on my doing, how will eternal life come to me? That's, that's what he's getting at. And so we read Jesus' response, verses 26 and 27. Look back with me. Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Now, from the, from the lawyer, this is a fascinating answer. Because what he does, he goes back and quotes the most famous passage in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 6, called the Shema. And then he quotes from another spot in the Torah, Leviticus 19, and then he quotes Jesus' own words in Matthew 22 and Mark 12. So he's building this like logically airtight argument and a biblically airtight argument of saying, here's what I'm supposed to do. You see these passages up on the screen and that uh, we just read there in his response, Deuteronomy 6. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. It's exactly what the lawyer said. He knew the scriptures well. Then the next one he quotes, Leviticus 19, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Knew the scriptures well. And then he not only says this is what the Bible says in the Old Testament, but he says, Jesus, this is what you actually said. I've overheard you say this before. Matthew 22, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So in the lawyer's answer then, it's almost like he's a Supreme Court justice quoting uh, the Constitution and then prior precedent. So if I got both the Constitution and prior precedent on my side, I've got a pretty strong case. It's like my kids, when they say to me, that we've got little catechisms in our family, little phrases I give them, and then they say back to me, and one of ours is, Daddy always keeps his promises. Well, as soon as I say anything about ice cream and they don't get ice cream, do you know what the first thing they say is? Dad, you always say, Daddy always keeps his promises. <laughs> right? They're quoting me to me as a way of saying, I'm right, and I'm pinning you on your own words, Dad. Now give me what I deserve. This is what the attorney, the lawyer, is doing. He's saying, Jesus, I'm quoting you on you, pinning you down, saying, let me get what I deserve, this eternal life. Let me show you that I've done enough because I've done what you said. So it puts Jesus in an interesting spot because, now, back to the ice cream, what do I say in that scenario? Well, circumstances have changed, kids. I didn't know that you were going to behave so badly. I didn't know we'd be out so late. You know, things have changed, so we can't do the ice cream bit right now. We got, we got to change what we were planning to do. And we sort of expect Jesus, Jesus is going to do this, like, theological ninja move and be like, well, you actually misunderstood the Old Testament, and here's what it's saying here. And he comes back with a remarkably simple response. Look at verse 28. He says, you've answered correctly. Do this and you'll live. That's not what they expected. He's like, wait, I was right? Jesus' simplicity, the straightforward answer is shocking. There's no theological fireworks going off today is another way of saying that. Like, we're not going to spar on this one. And one of the critical things that we'll see here throughout this parable, and it's good to note it right now, is you can have a ton of knowledge about the Bible and about theology and who Jesus is, and you can give all the right answers and not be a Christian. 
The demons, they, they always ace the theology test, but they hate the right answers that they can give. See, it's not a matter of head knowledge. It has to see deeply into your heart where the things you know to be true, by faith you say, Jesus, I know the facts of who you are, but I'm trusting my life to you, and I'm turning, I'm repenting. To Repentance is facing one way, I turn the other way. So I'm no longer pursuing myself. I'm trusting only in you, Jesus, to save me of my sins, and I'm gonna follow you with everything I've got. The man's response highlights the, that he was pretty proud. He was proud of what he did. He didn't see his need for a savior. He was saying, what can I do? Because I think if I work hard enough, if I exert enough self-discipline, enough rigor, enough planning, I can get the job done. The right question that he should have asked in response was this. Okay, if to love God with everything I've got and love my neighbor as myself is the right answer, then how would one find eternal life if I've failed to love God with everything I have and I've failed to love my neighbor as myself? That would have been the humble, the right response. If I haven't measured up to the standard, then what do I do? But that's not what he says. He said he seeks to justify himself, say he's done enough, and it shows that his heart is focused on earning God's grace instead of receiving God's grace. All that context, that backstory, leads us to our outline to walk through the parable. Three points to the parable. Avoiding mercy, showing mercy, loving mercy. Three simple points. Avoiding mercy, showing mercy, loving mercy. Let's start with avoiding mercy. It's what the lawyer was doing, and it's what the first couple guys were doing uh, in the parable. Look back at verse 29 with me. We pick up the, the lawyer's response. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. We see this priest, we see this Levite, religious leaders, with a chance to show goodness to a man who was in misery and distress, and they passed by on the other side. To be leaving Jerusalem and heading to Jericho means they were leaving the place of worship. They walk out the doors, having just heard the word of God, and they aren't changed. We read it and say, what were they thinking? Say, have, have you lost your mind? Son, I'll help you find it. What, what, what are they doing here? They were clearly in the wrong, and yet at the time, somehow, they seemed to be in the right. At least they thought they were. Right? Maybe, maybe they had a concern for the law. Right? The priests couldn't touch a dead body. That was against the rules for them. Maybe they thought this guy was actually dead, not half dead. The Levites had a, had a lengthy and a costly process towards their ceremonial cleanness. So if they were to, to touch an unclean body, it would take them an entire week to become ceremonially clean again. Maybe they thought, ah, it's, it's too costly, I've got to go do some religious duty this afternoon, and it's going to mess everything up, and I've got something else that God has called me to. Maybe it was a concern for personal safety. This road they were on at that time was called the Bloody Way. That was the, sort of the nickname of the road. 
It was a 17-mile journey, the entire 17 miles at a 4.5% decline. Now, you've driven down mountains, and you know how nervous you feel. You're tapping the brakes, wondering if you're going to burn them out. But you try and walk down 17 miles on a dirt road and rocky crags for that long? With robbers and bandits hidden all over the place? Maybe these guys are thinking, I know friends that have died here. They reach over and try and help, and it's a trap. I don't want this to happen to me. Maybe, maybe they've actually been that guy. Maybe they tried to help somebody previously, and they got their teeth kicked in. And it's like, no, I've been wounded on that before. I'm not going to step in here. This is, I understand it might be good to do, but I've got a reason to not step in and help here. Or maybe it was more benign than all of that. Maybe they saw the guy and they're like, yeah, his injuries are past my pay grade. I don't know what I would do. I don't know how to help. I don't know anybody I would call. My iPhone is out of service right here. And so I'm just going to keep on going. I'm not going to do anything. I'm not going to say anything. Whatever it was, like we don't know, they missed the point. Can we all agree on that? It was clear they missed an opportunity to show mercy to this guy and were left wondering what in the world is going on. They move on. They act as if nothing has happened. I think it's important that we pause here and just recognize the importance of acknowledging pain and seeing people. Right? You don't have to have all the answers. But you do have to see people and acknowledge their pain. You might say, hey, I can help out in one way. Here's how I can help out, and I can get you connected to somebody else who can help out in some other ways. You might say, man, I see you and I acknowledge your pain. I can't do hardly anything for you right now. But I promise you, I will pray for you, and I'm going to try and find a way to get you connected to somebody that can help more. That's still better than doing nothing and walking on not seeing and not acknowledging or you might say, I can actually help a lot here. I can't fix everything, but here's what I can do, and I'm going to come alongside you with my arm around you, proverbially and literally, and we're going to walk this road together. But it's critical, no matter how much we can do or can't do, that we see people and acknowledge their pain. The priest, the Levite, did neither. And we're introduced by them to a category that's called sins of omission. Sins of omission where we fail to love God and neighbor with everything we've got. Now, normally when it, we think of the, the term sin, rebelling against God, going our own way, we think of sin as commission, sins we commit, things we actively do that are wrong. I, I lied to my boss about why I was late. I got angry at my friend. I did such and such thing. I did this bad thing, sins of commission. That's usually what we think of. But there's also sins of omission, where we fail to do what we are supposed to do, which raises the question, how do I know if I'm committing a sin of omission? You got to be careful when you talk about sins of omission, because it can be really easy to excuse yourself. Say, yes, I might have been able to do this good thing, but I'm going to excuse myself like the priest and the Levite did. Got to be careful that we don't do that. But on the other side, you've also got to be careful because you can employ all kinds of false guilt against yourself to say, I could have done more. The reality is you always could have done more. And just because you could have done more doesn't mean that you're guilty for not doing more. So you can fall off the horse on either side here when we talk about sins of omission. And what we, what we do, we use a principle to sort of guide us called the principle of moral proximity. Moral proximity, all that means, it's a $2.50 word or term, all it means is the closer you are to a problem, 
the more obligation you have to meet it. The closer you are, the higher your obligation. Galatians 6.10 is sort of a, a passage, a verse that gives us a guidepost to this. It says, so then, as we have opportunity, critical phrase there, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. As we have opportunity, the closer we are, the more our obligation is. What this means, this principle of moral proximity, is that you're not responsible, you individually, to feed every orphan, to fund every hospital in every third world country, or to rescue every single person in the world who's trapped in human trafficking. You're not responsible for every single one of them. But you've also got to be careful as soon as you say that, because it's so easy to say, well, that's not my responsibility, and I quickly become a passerby. Right? Here we are today, June 19th, holiday known as Juneteenth. Some of you are familiar with that. It's a fairly new federal holiday at least. But Juneteenth is a, a, a recognition, a remembrance that in January of 1863, President Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation freeing the slaves. And two and a half years later, June, or July, June, July of 1865, you had many slaves, particularly in Texas, who didn't even know that they'd been freed yet. The message had not been brought to Texas. Now, what happened? Well, that's an interesting question about why that was, but along the way, there were a lot of people who were content to be passers-by and say, this news is not urgent enough to get there. And when we see people, whether it be priests, Levites, you think about Juneteenth and some of the things that are implied by that, we recognize that being a passerby is grievous. It's worthy of lament. And it demands action from us. Don't be a passerby. But, but this, this passage here is it's way broader than a guy who's hurt on the side of the road or something about race relations, it's broader than both of those. The point is that we're really good at finding ways to excuse ourselves, to say, yeah, that's not me. Yeah, I've got something else more important to be working on right now. Jesus would speak to this impulse in our hearts in the greatest ethical teaching in the history of the world, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter five. It's up on the screen. We see him confronting this self-excusing idea here. He says, you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you, may be sons of your so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? In other words, it's really easy for us to look out and see something that someone has done wrong, how you're my enemy, and I excuse myself, I justify myself for not showing neighborly love to you. Near the end of Matthew's gospel, he would record Jesus in Matthew 23 saying, here are the ways you've excelled. You've done so many things for the kingdom of God in good ways, but you've lost track of, you've ignored the weightier matters of the law. The more significant commands which Jesus identifies as three things in Matthew 23. He says it is uh, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. That middle one, mercy is what's being highlighted here, doing good to those in misery or distress. 
So we have to ask ourselves, just as the priests and the Levites at that time avoided mercy, made excuses for themselves, how do we do that? How do we do that today in 2022? Maybe we tell ourselves things like, well, they brought this on themselves. They've made sinful decisions. They've made foolish decisions. I need to let them reap the consequences and figure it out for themselves. I'm not going to do good to you in misery or distress because it's your own fault. You might think, man, this is going to be really messy. I don't know that I've got the time or the energy or the money to invest in this situation right now, and so I'm just going to pull back and find another reason that I'm too busy to excuse myself. Maybe we tell ourselves, hey, if I show radical love, radical neighborly love, mercy to this person, then somebody might think that I'm endorsing all their unwise or sinful decisions. And I don't want to be categorized as that. Maybe somebody's going to call me woke if I go and I do this. If I show neighborly love, if I show mercy to somebody. Maybe somebody else should do this. Maybe somebody else could do this. We've we've got all kinds of reasons that we excuse ourselves But in the midst of all of our possible excuses, we must remember that Jesus takes love of neighbor very seriously. And perhaps this morning, before we even think about proactively showing mercy, we need to repent of making excuses and avoiding mercy. Friends, this is the weightier matter of the law. That we show goodness to those in misery and distress. That we are marked by not only showing mercy, but loving mercy. That's the first thing we have to see. This brings to the second point, showing mercy. So we've seen the priest, we've seen the Levite, they avoid mercy. We've considered how we might do that. Lots to ponder on there. That might be a good lunch conversation for you. But then we move to showing mercy. Look back at your copy of the scriptures, verse 33. We pick up. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. I lost my place there, I'm sorry. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. He shows mercy. He shows good deeds to a man in misery and in distress. Now notice what's not in the passage. We get zero information on the nature of the robbers. We get zero information on the nature of the attack. We get zero information on the nature of the victim. That's not what we're supposed to zoom in on. Why was he there? Why was he not there? Was he doing a good thing? Was he doing a bad thing? Had he been a good guy? Had he been a bad guy? We don't get any of that. Right? That's not the point. The expectation that's being built in the reader is after the bad clergymen show up that a good clergyman will show up. Where's the actual man of God when you need him? Yet instead of a good clergyman, we get a Samaritan, which would have been utterly shocking to the listener. Utterly shocking. Here's why. The Samaritans were known for intermarriage with the Assyrians. Syrians were just super bad dudes. You didn't want anything to do with an Assyrian. They maybe think of North Koreans today. No offense on anybody from North Korea. It's just you tend to think of like, oh, that's, they're bad guys, right? And so these, these uh, 
Samaritans had intermarried. They had their own temple for worship and their own version of the Torah. Right? You didn't want to be with them. They were viewed by the Jews, the Samaritans were viewed as half-breds and heretics. So whether you were more sophisticated or less sophisticated, you had good reasons to hate them, or so they thought. In fact, one of the rabbinical teachings of the day said this. Let me read to you what one of the, one of the rabbinical teachings would say. Samaritans should be pushed in the ditch and not pulled out. That's what they taught. Look, find an opportunity to kick them to the side and then be sure you leave them there, and if you can, kick them while they're down. That's the idea. So the bad clergyman pass by. You're looking for the good clergyman, and the Samaritan shows up. So when we say the good Samaritan, for the initial audience, it would be like saying, oh, yes, the good jihadist came along. It's a contradiction in terms. Like, what, Jesus, this doesn't make any sense. What are you talking about here? Surely this guy can't do something that's pleasing to God. And yet he does. And it's very costly. Right, what are the things that we're told? We're told that he, he bound up his wounds and poured oil and wine on him. He set him on his own animal and at his own cost carries him to the inn. And at the inn, we're said that this good Samaritan not only takes him there, but he actually is the one taking care of him until it's time to leave. He pays two denarii, two days wages to the innkeeper and says, hey, I'm coming back and take care of him Spare no expense, I'll cover all the cost when I get back. It gives a picture of obedience that the rest of the scriptures lay out. Here's what it looks like to take the commands of the Bible and put them into practice. I help out immediately with what I can. I take you to a place where you can receive additional help that you need. And as you're lacking along the way with the resources, I'll meet those needs as well. Holistic help, not merely saying I'll pull you out of the ditch, but I'm going to see everything that's needed for your good so that I can do good to you while you're in misery and distress. This is what the rest of the New Testament teaches, but you see it in living color here in this parable. Consider Galatians 5. We read, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. That's what the Good Samaritan shows, faith working through love. Or Colossians 3.14, above all these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Above all these commands, put on love. Or 1 John 3, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. It's easy to find lots of, of words and flowery proverbs and counsel Let's not let our love be restricted there, but in deed and in truth, in actually showing love. See, for Jesus, this term neighbor is not a noun. I am a neighbor. I've got someone next to me. No, it's a verb. I will go neighbor you. Or if you're a, a, a Christian music kind of person, maybe you remember DC Talk saying that love is a verb. Same idea there, right? To be a neighbor Consider that as a verb. How am I neighboring someone? So practically in 2022, how do we show mercy in similar ways to what this good Samaritan did? Let me give you five Ps. Kind of analogy, or uh, what's that looking for? Uh, alliteration, thank you. It's not an analogy, it's an alliteration. Preachers should know these things. Five Ps for showing mercy in our present day. Here's the first P, pray. Pray. Pray for a heart that's filled with mercy for the hurting. 
Because if I don't start with the problems in me and my lack of mercy inside, then it's just gonna be lipstick on a pig of me trying to do good things like this lawyer to earn some favor either with my fellow man or with God. Dads, it's Father's Day. Maybe the thing you ought to do coming out of this sermon is pray for a merciful heart towards your kids. Right? We all know that frustrated, grumpy, leave me alone sort of feeling. Like, I know that one. I'll love my kids dearly, and I know that feeling deeply. Maybe I need to, and you need to pray for a heart that's merciful to your children. And what better gift could you give them on Father's Day than modeling repentance into a heart of mercy? That'd be a great Father's Day. Yes, we pray for a heart of mercy, but we also, second P, we ponder. Ponder, where are there needs around me that I'm missing? This requires sitting and having sustained thought. Often we're governed by the tyranny of the urgent. We're bouncing from one thing to the next, and we never sit and ponder, where are the needs right in front of me? I should be seeing these. And if you've ever been hurting and felt like people weren't there for you, you know what this is like. You're like, man, you guys are all around me. It should not be confusing that I'm in need right now. I thought you were my friends, right? What happens? We fail to ponder what's going on right around me. We fail to ask, are there any needs in your life? Or we ask a friend, hey, I think something might be going on here. I'm not trying to gossip. Is there just a way that I could help out? You be the church, the body of Christ together. You pray, you ponder, you plan. Third P, plan. Now, the the good Samaritan shows up and he gives two days wages to cover the need and says, hey, I'll come back and pay for more. Lots of people want to be generous, but if you don't plan to be generous, you won't be generous. It's like they say, failing to plan is planning to fail. Well, it's the same thing with the generosity that we want to contribute. So personally, it might mean just planning ways and leaving margin in your time, your talent, and your treasure that you can be generous. Right? I had a friend of mine, so I'll tell you what... uh, what uh, generation he's from, would carry around a $100 bill. Right? Nobody carries cash anymore. Uh, but he planned to be generous. He planned to be able to do good to others. I'm just going to have something on me at all times. This is not budgeted for anything. It's not assigned for anything. But I'm going to plan a way that I can be generous to somebody. Plan a way that I can help out with somebody's car problems. I'm going to leave some, some, uh, some margin in my schedule. So the time and the talent that I have, I can actually assist in this way. Whether it be maybe counseling. Like, I'm, I'm a good counselor. I'm a good listener, you might say. Have you planned breaks in your schedule so you can actually show mercy and meet needs? Maybe it's simply somebody needs to go for a walk. You know how life-giving that can be to just have a friend that can just walk and talk and hear what you're saying, even if you don't have the answers? But if you don't plan to have margin in your time, your talent, and your treasure, other things will squeeze it out and you won't show mercy like the Samaritan did. When you think about how we, those are all individual sort of ways, right? But you plan for how we do this as a church, right? We plan programs that we can mobilize the church as, as an aircraft carrier sort of does to send people out on mission as a group. And when you give to the church, this is how we're planning to show mercy as well through programs like Fast Track that we talked about, through the storehouse, through the upcoming community Christmas project, 
through our ongoing benevolence fund. So as needs come to us, like every time you give, monies go to each of these kinds of things. So that as a church, we're together planning, how can we show mercy here? So you pray, you ponder, you plan. I told you there were five, there's two more. Four, you pursue, pursue mercy. This sort of is connected to the pondering part, but you anticipate needs because people generally don't ask. I know it's not fun to ask for help. Sort of humiliating to say I don't have it all together and I need this. I recognize that in myself, and I know that it's going to happen in others, so I'm going to pursue ways to show mercy. I'm not going to be passive and say, oh, if there was a problem, they would reach out. Right? No, don't do that. Pursue Listen to requests that people give and think about what are three steps downstream of what this need might result in. You pursue what that could look like. And then fifthly, you persist. Persist, because it's so easy for us to remember a time when I showed mercy, when I was generous. And I could reflect on the past and I need to persist in showing mercy, not say, oh yes, I did that a couple of times or I did that last year or last month. So you pray for a heart of mercy, you ponder where you can be merciful, you plan to be merciful, you pursue mercy wherever you can, and you persist in showing mercy. Now, none of that is a specific do this right away sort of thing, but they're principles that guide what it means to be merciful as the Good Samaritan was merciful, so we're not passers-by, and we actually see people acknowledge their pain and do what we can as we have opportunity, Galatians 6.10, to help out. This is what it looks like to to show mercy. Now, all that being said, there's a bit of a danger, a trap, that I may have inadvertently led you to. What do you mean, Justin? Well, the lawyer in Luke 10 wanted to justify himself, to add up his good works, to run the calculator of the things he'd done, to say he'd done enough. And lists tend to have that sort of effect. I've completed my punch list, or I haven't. And Jesus didn't command merely a few calculated actions to show mercy to people, to our neighbors. No, he said to love your neighbor as yourself. Nobody ever thinks of their own needs while their needs are still great and said, oh, I've done enough for myself. I'm good now. Not a matter of merely showing mercy. What Jesus is commanding is that we love mercy. That's our third point, loving mercy. Don't avoid mercy. Do show mercy. But you actually have to go beyond showing mercy to love mercy. See, it's easy to hear the parable, and we ought to ask, how can I be the good Samaritan, not be the priest, not be the Levite? But we've also got to move past mere shallow, surface-level behavior modification to deeper life transformation. We're not interested in this little behavior mod stuff. That's not, I hope that's not what you came to church for today. If it is, I want to give you something better, something richer, something deeper, and it's going to require a shift. Right? We have to see the main point of Luke 10 in this parable isn't merely helping people on the side of the road or that all good Samaritans will be saved or that racial reconciliation is important. No, the main point is that for believers in Jesus Christ, love is a way of being, not a list to be calculated. It's a heart that's cultivated, not an action that's counted. 
Let me say it again. Neighborly love is a heart that's cultivated, not an action that's counted. So the wrong question for us to ask is, who is my neighbor? How can I calculate that I've done enough? No, the right question is, who are you as a neighbor? And how can I cultivate a heart that loves mercy? A heart that if you could just squeeze my heart and wring it out, that mercy would ooze out of it. How do I cultivate that kind of a heart? You say, Justin, I want that, but I'm pretty sure that's not me right now. I do want to go past this shallow behavior change stuff. I want to go past the hollow Sunday Christianity for a seven-day-a-week real Christianity. Where's that found, you're asking? Yeah, that sounds good. I want it. How do we get there? This is what we're going to talk about in this loving mercy section. First thing is this. You don't start with what must I do. That leads to a ledger where you calculate what you've done. Don't start with what must I do. Start with what's been done for me. What's been done for me. That leads to a heart of gratitude that transforms my entire being. You see, the prophet Micah in the Old Testament, he knew we would face this question where I want to add up, what have I done? Is it enough? And I need to recognize, no, the first question is not what must I do, but what's been done for me. And in Micah 6, he spells this out really clearly for us. He's trying to figure out what's a big enough sacrifice. Have I been enough of a neighbor? Here's what he says. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? What am I supposed to do? How can I give enough? Here's the response. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Yeah, you can never repay it. You can never do enough. But love justice, or do justice, love kindness, or love mercy, that kindness word, kindness, mercy, same Hebrew word there in Micah 6, and walk humbly with God. Instead of calculating what I've done, come humbly saying it's all of what you've done, Christ, it's not what I have done. See, it's, it's a different way of saying the Bible is all about God and what he's done for you, not about you and what you need to do for God. That's a major, major difference. It is so easy to read the Bible primarily as saying, here's what I'm supposed to do to earn God's favor and say, no, 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 that's not it. It's all about what he's done for you and how that changes you from the inside out and transforms your life. How do I love kindness? How do I love mercy? Say, on some days, my better days, my best days, I can show some, but rarely do I love mercy. This is why we say the truth hidden in plain sight is that mercy, loving mercy is essential, but humanly impossible. Because I can show some mercy on my own, but I can't love it on my own. And that's what's required. This is why you think back to even a couple hundred years ago, Sebastian Bach, one of his famous cantatas. Look at what he, he wrote in Cantata 77. He says, ah, there abides in my love naught but imperfection. I have an imperfect love. Sometimes I show mercy, sometimes I don't. Though often I have the will to accomplish God's commandments, it is not yet possible. 
Sometimes I want to, sometimes I don't, but even when I want to, I do it from a flawed motive. Sometimes I show mercy, but I don't love it, is what Bach would say of the human heart. Or John Bunyan, famous theologian farmer, would say this, to run and work the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. The law says, go show mercy, go be kind, go do this. It tells me where to go, but it doesn't let me get there. It's like GPS on my car without fuel in it. And the gospel informs and motivates and fuels me on the way. It bids me fly and gives me wings when I see what God has done for me. Because we've been building the whole sermon to this particular point. Here's how the deeper transformation takes place. You place yourself in the parable not as the priest. You place yourself in the parable not as the Levite. Not even as the Samaritan. You recognize the person I'm most like is the half-dead man. With one notable exception, that spiritually I wasn't half-dead, I was wholly dead. And while the parable is not a strict allegory for Jesus, it's not, the parallels are pretty striking. Just think with me for a second. Just like that man left for dead on the side of the mountain, we find ourselves in a dangerous world where it seems that robbers and bandits rule. Doesn't it seem that way in our world? The people who win are the greedy ones who are cheating their way to get there. The global leaders, the politicians. And I can't trust anybody. And Satan's beaten us up and left us for dead on the side of the road, attacked, and we have no hope. And all the people who should have had the answers have passed us by. We tried religion for change for a little while. It helped for a bit, but the, the rules were kind of like pouring salt in an open wound and it just burned too badly as people layered rule upon rule upon rule, and I couldn't bear it. So we turned to therapy for healing, and it, and it helped a little, but at the end of the day, I found out that my problems were deeper than any psychology. So the therapy wasn't able to really get me off the side of the road either. So I turned to pleasure to try and numb my problems, you might say. And it was fun for a while, but ultimately the numbing wears off and I've got to find something different, something better, a bigger thrill. And that doesn't work either. So here I am again, hopeless, despairing. How can I be with God? And from an unexpected place and an unexpected source, hope actually comes. We're told that Samaritan was the picture of hatred. You don't want to be like them. And our world says this pretty similar message about who Jesus is, doesn't it? Intolerant, bigot, homophobe, don't go be like him. And yet from the person that is supposedly to be hated, you find true love being shown, true hope true mercy, true kindness. You see, Jesus seeing the need, seeing you, acknowledging your pain, and actually doing something about it instead of scolding you for why you're in the ditch in the first place. Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his love for us. He shows his love for us. He proves his love to us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He came, says, I see your problem. I'm not scolding you for it. I'm gonna pick you up. I'm gonna bind up your wounds. I'm not just gonna bind them up. First Peter 2, he's actually going to bear your sins himself. He's not gonna put you on his own animal and carry you to the end. He's gonna pick you up and carry you straight to heaven. He's gonna pay your way. He's gonna leave his spirit to help you. 
And he's going to come back, and anything that you need, he will bring when he comes back. He says, I've got you from the beginning to the end. This is all the work of grace. Will you simply trust me? Will you give your life to me? Will you receive my mercy? You say, man, Justin, I, I see myself as the, the wounded man on the side of the road, helpless, left to die, and Jesus, you saved me. How can I repay you? Wouldn't the man ask that? I have my life back. I was dead, and now I'm alive. I was lost, now I'm found. What can I do about this? And he says, you can't repay me. The debt is too great. I've paid it all. But reflect on the mercy that you've been shown. And out of that mercy, your heart will be transformed. And no longer will you think of a ledger of have I done enough. You'll see, wow, look at the mercy that was shown to me when Christ died on the cross to take my sins and pay for all of them and give me his righteousness and give me a new life. I'll see the depth of mercy and hear him say, yes, you've answered wisely. Go and do likewise. Show a similar mercy. Friends, the heart that has received mercy shows mercy. And it goes beyond that. The heart that has received mercy not only shows mercy, it loves mercy. So I ask you this morning, have you received mercy? Because you can know a lot about Jesus. You can know a lot about the Bible. You can know a lot of theological answers and not have actually received his mercy. It can be abstract, ethereal in your head and not received in your heart. Where you say, Jesus, I will entrust myself to you. I will give my whole life to you. I will receive your mercy and have a changed life as a result. I will repent of my sin, believe in you. I will confess that Jesus is Lord. Or friend, are you this morning running your life like a good works calculator? Like an Excel ledger layering up, here's the good that I've done. You can be a Christian and do that too, you know. To slip back into a legalistic mindset where I add up the good that I've done. Or you can turn from that. You can see the beauty of the mercy you've been given. You can bask in it like a nice summer day where you just sit outside this afternoon maybe and feel the sun and its warmth and you say, oh, this is good. Do you bask in mercy like you bask in that sunlight? And sit and enjoy it, and let yourself be warmed and changed and moved out by it? That's the question. And you get to write the answer. How will I respond to the mercy of God in my life to deeply change me, compel me out to live a merciful life? Let's pray.